we've been in the midst of a series on the Sermon on the Mount, studying the most famous teachings from the world's most famous teacher. And I think we can all admit that we've at times found Jesus' holy words to be an uncomfortable challenge to the unholiness in our hearts. It's like strong medicine that's intended to cure our souls. It doesn't always taste good going down, but it's the healing effect that we're after. Amen? However, today we come to perhaps the most encouraging passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 and 12. Will you turn there with me to page 812 of your pew Bible? Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. And beginning in verse 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and to the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now, this passage, of course, brings to mind the call from God to have a relationship with him that's expressed through prayer. But I wonder if you've ever thought about the difference between something like biblical prayer and magic spells. Uh, right? On the surface, they would seem to be similar, but there's actually crucial distinctions. Like with magic spells, it's all about getting the words, the incantation, perfectly correct, or else you might face drastic consequences. And with prayer... It's less about the words. It's more about the posture of our hearts. With magic, the power is an impersonal force that's ignorant of our needs. We have to bring our needs. Otherwise, it won't be clear what we're doing. In prayer, the power is a personal God who knows what we need before we ask him. Again, with magic spells, human beings seek to manipulate power. In prayer... We submit to almighty power. In the one we say, my will be done. In the other we say, thy will be done. Magic spells are primarily about outcomes, whereas prayer is primarily about a relationship. With spells, we make a pretense at being adults, at knowing more than we actually know. And through prayer, we remember that we are simple children and we make simple requests. Now, this sharp distinction between prayer and magic spells is beautifully illustrated in C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair, which is the sixth book in his Chronicles of Narnia series. In the opening scene, there are two middle school kids named Jill and Eustace, and they're being bullied. So they want to escape um, from this bullying to the land of Narnia, but they know that they can't get there on their own power. So Jill, who's never been to Narnia, suggests that maybe they should draw a circle on the ground and write things in queer letters in the circle and stand inside and recite charms and spells. And at first, Eustace is sympathetic to this idea. But he decides that Aslan, the Christ figure, wouldn't like this approach very much. Because it might give him the impression that the kids were making Aslan do things that he didn't really want to do. It might take away Aslan's will from him or give the impression that that's what they're trying to do. 
So instead, what they decide to do is something much more like prayer. They, they stand with their arms extended and simply ask and seek and knock. And lo and behold, as if C.S. Lewis had this very passage from Matthew 7 in mind, there's this garden door that's usually locked, and they find that it's open, and it leads the two children to Narnia and into the presence of Aslan. Now, I wonder if sometimes we all treat prayer more like magic. I wonder if sometimes we treat God more like a withholding judge that needs to be manipulated rather than as a loving father to whom we simply need ask. Our passage this morning goes a long way toward correcting these kinds of false images of God, as well as our own mistaken ways of approaching him. Here Jesus presents us with three beautiful truths. In verses 7 and 8, we learn that if we seek God, we will find him. In verses 9 through 11, we learn how much more good the heavenly father is than all earthly reckoning. And in verse 12, we learn that for God, love is at the center of his will. So let's begin with Jesus' affirmation in verse 7, seek and you shall find. We've already alluded to this a bit. In fact, we find three verbs here, ask, seek, knock, and all are in the present imperative tense. Taken together, they issue a threefold summons to prayer. But the application and encouragement goes beyond prayer. Jesus' words are intended to sort of fan into flame our faith. He says nothing less that, than that behind the veil, behind the veil of the cosmos, there is a God who is there. A God who is imminently knowable and loving. A God who wishes to be found. Is that how you think of God? God is not wishing to withhold from us. He calls us to ask. God is not committed to hiding from us. He says to seek. God is not closed off from us. He says knock and the door will be opened. These words are intended to sort of melt the despair of the human heart. They're reminiscent of the Lord's promise in Jeremiah 29, 12, and 13 to the Jewish exiles that after 70 years in Babylon, the Lord promises, then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In other words, our problem is not that God cannot be found but that we do not seek him. We hide from him like Adam and Eve in the garden. Indeed, we run from him, and God in his loving kindness pursues us again and again and again. This truth is beautifully captured in a poem entitled The Hound of Heaven, written in 1890. The author, Francis Thompson, was a medical student who developed an addiction to opioids and became a homeless beggar living on the streets of London. Thompson contemplated suicide but was saved by a vision from God and rescued off the streets by a prostitute 
who gave him lodgings. This famous poem describes his efforts to run from God and how the hound of heaven continued to pursue him in all his wanderings. He says this, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. So here Thompson describes his running and God's unremitting pursuit like a hound of heaven, which at first feels threatening to him. But in the end, Thompson comes to the conclusion that in running from God, he has been running from God's love. And the Lord explains to him, all which I took from thee, I did but take, not for thy harms, but just that thou mightest seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies as lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand and come. Halt by me, that footfall is my gloom after all. Shade of his hand outstretched caressingly. Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. Thou dravest love from thee who dravest me. Thou dravest love from me who dravest me. From Thompson's autobiographical poem, we might say that God does indeed grant our requests, but mercifully, he often ignores our request to leave us the heck alone. Indeed, like any good earthly parent, our loving heavenly father is altogether, he's resistant to unwholesome requests. And this brings us to our next point, which can be best expressed in three words from Matthew 7, verse 11. How much more? How much more? This is a, there's a whole subcategory of Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of Matthew that build off of these three words. In Matthew 6, we had just finished hearing Jesus tell people how much more valuable they are than birds. How much more will he clothe them than the grass of the field? Now, most of these how much more statements are encouraging, but in Matthew 10, 25, this phrase is also used to issue a sober warning. If they have called the master of the house the prince of demons, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Later on, when Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, he confronts the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees who are all too willing to rescue their own animals from harm on the Sabbath. And he says to them in Matthew 12, 12, Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. How much more? These words emphasize the surpassing greatness of heaven and the things that God values over against the earthly reckonings of man. In Matthew 7, 9 through 11, Jesus says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, and notice that Jesus is implicitly affirming the inherent sinfulness of human beings, and also that we are capable of basic goodness. 
If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Here Jesus compares the fallen goodness of man with the unassailable goodness of the heavenly Father. How much more loving is our heavenly Father than even the tenderest love we can muster for our own children? How much more can we anticipate good things from the one who is himself pure goodness, who has no mixture of intentions? How much higher is Jesus' assessment of the Father than our own unconscious thoughts and feelings of God? Beloved, if only we could learn to think upon God with the mind of Christ. Jesus referred to God as his Abba, an Aramaic word that's best translated as daddy or papa. This was a scandalously intimate image to use to refer to God in that day. And even today, it still makes us uncomfortable, right? The Jewish scholar Joachim Jeremiah, after a deep dive into the prayers of ancient Judah, had this to say. He said, in no place is this in, in, the, in this immense literature is this invocation of God as Abba to be found. Abba was an everyday word, a, a homely family word. No Jew would have dared to address God in this manner. Jesus did it always and authorizes his disciples to repeat the word Abba after him. Did you know this, brothers and sisters? Did you know that you've been authorized by Jesus Christ to call God your daddy? To call God your papa? How do you feel about that? <laughs> Amen. If you spent much time around me, you've probably heard me quote from A.W. Tozer. He says, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And this is what he's talking about. He's not talking about what we'd say we believe about God, like affirming the Nicene Creed. But he's talking about what we believe on a subconscious level, when we're operating sort of on spiritual autopilot, when we enter into prayer. Does the mere thought of God make us feel guilty? Does it stress us out? Do we worry that what God defines as being good for us will somehow miss the mark and, and be really unsatisfying or worse? From a theological perspective, we know that these kinds of thoughts are ridiculous. Of course God knows what's good for us. He made us. But because of the fall and our alienation from paradise, we in our nakedness want to hide ourselves from God on a visceral level. Last week, many of you stayed after church to learn some, some basic sign language from Asher. And I hope many of you will join him this week. But did you know that God speaks to us in a kind of heavenly sign language as well? This is what it means to have a sacramental worldview. For example, earthly marriage is a sacramental sign that points to Christ's desire to be united with his bride forever. Likewise, the bread and wine of Holy Communion communicate the sacrifice of Christ in a way that words never could. And Jesus said, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not understand. How then will you understand if I speak to you of heavenly things? 
A few weeks ago, after confirmation class, one of the youth came up to me and asked whether we call God Father because we have earthly parents and we realize that's a good thing to call God. And I answered that the great theologians have always thought about it the other way around. That because God is our creator, he ordered and ordained earthly families to have fathers. And in this way, he reveals something that is eternally true about himself through these earthly things. As Pope John Paul II puts it, God speaks to us in sign language through the veil of the physical world. And in this way, the institution of human fatherhood, however imperfect, and as an earthly father, I for one am glad that Jesus looks on the human institution with sober judgment. But however imperfect, it's intended as an earthly sign of our heavenly father. Now, I know this is a particularly hard word for those among us who have been deeply wounded by their earthly fathers, and today might be a good day to take advantage of prayer ministry during communion. But consider this. Perhaps the reason why fatherhood has become so distorted, so twisted in our day, not to mention marriage, is that the devil takes special aim at all those sacramental signposts of God. If it's meant to reveal the truth and glory of God, the enemy will leverage every means at his disposal to steal and to kill and to destroy. So pray for the fathers in this world too. And by the way, I know it's Mother's Day. (laughs) I didn't choose this text for today. So let's also give a shout out to the many instances in the Bible where God speaks of his love for us in more maternal language and imagery. If you're having a hard time with the father heart of God, perhaps that's a good place to start. What comes to our mind when we think about God is so crucial in every area of our life because human ethics are grounded in the character of God. The morality of created man is rooted in the heart of our creator. Do we understand that, beloved? That's why Jesus consistently taught that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength. And the second is like it. The second's like it. It's linked to it. It's tethered to it. To love our neighbor as ourselves. And that brings us to our final point. That for God, love is at the center of his will. Because it's at the center of his nature. In verse 12, Jesus summarizes the entire Sermon on the Mount up to this point. As well as the Old Testament saying, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. When Jesus says this is the law and the prophets, he means that the call to love, to do unto others, is itself the very essence of the scriptures. Think of it as the sort of like arch file folder on your computer. So if all the great stories and commandments and proverbs and themes of the Bible were sort of scattered on your desktop as separate files, you could effectively tidy things up by clicking and dragging them all under the one file folder titled the golden rule. Around 20 BC, the famous Jewish rabbi Hillel was challenged to teach the whole law while standing on one leg. It was a challenge that his rival had declined. And so Rabbi Hillel accepted the challenge and stated, 
What is hateful for you, do not do it to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is commentary. <laughs> and down through the centuries, there are many others who have taught this version of the golden rule, from the great Chinese sage Confucius to the Stoic philosophers of ancient Greece. But Jesus' wisdom surpassed them all. Because in all other versions, the emphasis is on the avoidance of doing harm. Do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you, whereas Jesus' formulation always emphasizes the positive responsibility of love. Do unto others what you would have them do to you. Do you see the difference? It's one thing to say, I would not want someone to walk through my flower bed, so I will not walk through theirs. It's another thing to say, if I lost my job, I would want someone's help. So I will seek to help the unemployed. The potential applications are endless here. Matthew 7, 12, and it's an example of virtue-based morality as opposed to rule-based. It presents a guiding vision for our moral lives rather than a list of do's and don'ts. In fact, it would probably be better called the golden vision. Applying this teaching takes some imagination and some wisdom, a thoughtful willingness to place ourselves in someone else's shoes. What do I mean by this? Well, the comedian Jack Handy, who used to be a writer for Saturday Night Live, once said, before you criticize someone, you should watch, walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away and you have their shoes. <laughs> That's not actually what Jesus meant. <laughs> but if a child asks his mother for ice cream, the demands of love require the mother to weigh several factors at once, don't they? What does it mean for her to love her child as herself? It would be an overly simplistic application and unloving to assume that real love always means giving the immature child what they want. On the other hand, it would be imbalanced to say that there's never an appropriate time for ice cream. I mean, whew, amen. If I were in their shoes, I would want ice cream to be a part of my life, at least on certain occasions. But other factors might include the time of day, whether the child is diabetic, whether they've eaten their vegetables, how much sugar they've already consumed that day. What time of night is it? These things can get complicated because often there are multiple people, multiple factors to consider at once. So to go back to an earlier example, an unemployed man might appreciate your help. But what if it's the kind of help that takes away his dignity? What if it's a paternalistic solution that disempowers the person in need in a way that only further contributes to the cycle of poverty? Obviously, the call to love is more nuanced than simplistic rule following. And we will all make many mistakes in trying to figure out how to apply love. But the point is that love is the decisive factor. Love is the rule. Love is at the center of God's will because love is at the center of God's nature. Let's take a moment to summarize as we begin to draw to a close. This, moment in Math, uh, this morning in Matthew 7, 
Jesus taught us many things and sought to clarify our vision. We've learned that if we seek God, if we seek God, we will indeed find him. In fact, the hound of heaven is after us. We've learned how much more, can you say that together? How much more good the heavenly father is than all earthly reference. The heavenly father, our father and our mother might let us down. They're evil, even though they still know how to give good gifts to their children. How much more will your father in heaven, in whom there is no shadow, no shifting, no evil. Our holy God has never had an unholy thought pass through his mind. He's never had an ill intention for any one of you. Do you understand, beloved? How much more your father in heaven loves you than any person in this world. And then you love yourself. And we learn that for God, love is at the center of his will. Beloved, if we could only learn to think about God with the mind of Christ. Indeed, if only we could learn to look at Christ and see him as the image of the invisible God. As the word made flesh, as all the fullness of God in human form. Do you want to know what God's heart toward you looks like? Look at the cross of Jesus. Look at his sacrificial love for you. That is the love of God projected on the screen of this world. How much more? How much more pure? How much more lovely? How much more powerful is the love of God than we reckon when we're on spiritual autopilot? And so let us pray. Heavenly Father, Abba, Daddy, Would you jolt our sinful and untrusting hearts? Lord Jesus Christ, would you fan into flame true faith in who you really are? Holy Spirit, apart from your grace, we will mishandle these truths. But by your grace, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We praise you for these things. We praise you for who you are. Would you convert our vision of you from the vision that Jesus presents in his holy word and indeed embodies in his holy person. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.